Hello, everybody, and welcome to the now 10th episode of the Bad MotoGP show. We uh, finished a astonishing weekend in Catalonia with a lot of drama, and we're here to discuss it all. So, Keelan, you enjoyed the races? Hello, Leo. Welcome back, everybody. We've made it to the number of Luca Marini in terms of episodes on the Bad MotoGP show. Of course, we make it relevant. Yeah, this weekend was brilliant. Um, as, I mean, I don't think we've had a bad weekend this season yet, to be fair, but Catalonia is one of my favorite tracks on the calendar. It never disappoints that this year was no different. Um, from Moto3 to the top class and all the way down again, it was brilliant. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday were all great. I'm looking forward to breaking it down. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, um, I thought the MotoGP race was amazing for all the wrong reasons because the racing in itself wasn't uh, very competitive. I mean, Fabio was ahead like five seconds and um, we had some drama with crashes, what you don't want to see, the late drama, what uh, you don't want to see, all of this, you know. Um, but I would say let's start with Fabio because uh, he is out of this world. We discussed it many times that if you want to win on a Yamaha, that you need to uh, qualify on the front row, have a good start, bang out like five incredible laps when nobody can touch you, and then maintain a good pace towards the end. And that's exactly what he did. He was untouchable today. And uh, yeah, the way he attacked that first corner might actually save his race because he was super aggressive in there. So, kudos to him. I'm I'm lost of of words how good he is because uh, we know that the Yamaha isn't the best package. We've seen that with uh, every other Yamaha rider this season, even though they're making improvements. But Fabio is just on another level, and that's that's so so beautiful to see because he's in, uh, he's amazing for the sport and. Um, yeah, he's now in control of the World Championship. Yeah, I mean, Fabio was just, you know, I could talk about Friday and Saturday, which were great on their own, but that race from Fabio was saved in turn one, as you just said absolutely correctly. Um, Fabio got a brilliant start off the line. Um, I don't know if a lot of people picked up on that, but he managed to get a really quick launch off the line, which um, I think he might have struggled with a little bit in some races earlier this season but he got a real quick clean break off the line which was good to see and like you just said that entry into turn one saved the race for him and basically guarant not guaranteed his win but set him on the course from there um i mean i'm sure we'll get on to the rest of the debacle from turn one and turn two later on in the show but just keeping it on fabio for a moment that clean, aggressive entry into turn one was beautiful to see, and it allowed him to escape all the carnage that occurred behind him. Let's not forget, not to give away any spoilers or anything, but Fabio Quartararo started behind Paco Banyaya and uh, Alicia Spargo, and he managed to just undercut both of them cleanly and escape everything that happened behind him. Then he was able to go out, like you've always said, bang out those two, three, four, five laps uninterrupted at the front, set the pace and just, you know, manage the race better than anybody can. So Fabio's race was won in those first two corners of the opening lap and he did it to perfection. Congratulations, Fabio, because he truly is out of this world. He's just special. 
Yeah, and his pace is so amazing when you consider that the track had very, very low grip. A lot of riders complain about that. And uh, he was able to lap like three tenths, four tenths faster than everybody else. And I mean, Jorge Martin in P2 at the beginning, he isn't uh, slow either. So it's it's really, really uh, dominant what he did. And the way he um, he saved his tires, because the rear tire was the big issue over the race distance, and still maintained that speed uh, while everybody else was uh, a good, let's say, half a second slower, more or less, um, was out of this world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good point that you raised about the track grip at Catalonia, because this is a point that was made quite a lot over the whole weekend. Um, from what I understand, F1 was at Catalonia not that long ago. And a lot of commentators, have, I mean, I've got to be honest, I don't know either. But um, the point was made that F1 was in Barcelona maybe two, three, four weeks ago. And that's probably why the track was in the condition it was in, in terms of the lack of grip. And I think it was a good point to be made if that was the case, which I believe it was. Um, and that's just left no grip for MotoGP or probably World Superbike, anybody else that follows the trail of F1 on those tracks. But to go out and do what Fabio did, especially with no grip on a trap like on a track like Catalonia, that's got sharp turns and flowing straights, it just it's a testament to the quality of the rider himself. And Fabio on that bike is on a different level. There's just no comparison. He is sensational. Yeah, and uh, he extended with Yamaha because, uh, I mean, let's be honest, there was one real other option, which was Honda, which was a real gamble. It could have paid out. There was a huge upside, but there's also a huge risk. Yamaha seemed to be the safe option. And uh, he manages to uh, override that bike very, very good this season. And they uh, brought in Luca Marmorini. Marmorini. Yeah, uh, who's an engine engineer who worked with uh, Ferrari in F1 and with Aprilia uh, and MotoGP to fix this engine. And uh, Fabio with a good engine is almost unbeatable because he is so unbelievably fast and he has also the the right amount of aggression he is extremely extremely aggressive this year because he has to obviously mm -hmm. but it almost never gets to the point where uh, you think okay that was too harsh like mark marcus for example he was also very aggressive uh, during his peak days but there were a lot of moments where you thought okay this wasn't necessarily necessary yeah, it was like on this very thin line. And Fabio is exactly. always like a little bit below the the border where it becomes unfair, you know? And that's really impressive. So let's hope Yamaha can pick up a new uh, staff of uh, engineers. Uh, I heard a lot of Suzuki engineers are uh, free now. <laughs> so um, yeah, maybe they can fix the engine and... Even without it, he's so good. And I believe actually that Yamaha will improve over the next uh, two years because they simply have to. I mean, yeah, it's evident. Yeah, um, yeah I couldn't agree anymore, Leo. You're absolutely correct. Um, I do think when it comes to Fabio, because obviously um, we only find out this weekend that he has uh, extended with Yamaha. 
Now, I can only assume, and this is just an assumption, but it is my own view, that the development of that engine is a huge part of why he's re-signed and the promise of a better bike. Obviously, that's what everybody wants. But the two, there's two very interesting developments here, and we've already mentioned one of them, which is Luca Marmarini, who did a lot of work with Ferrari, as you said, in Formula One, and he redeveloped and redefined the Aprilia V4 and MotoGP. So that's going to be big for Fabio in these next two years and probably the remainder of this year also. But what's also very interesting, and I can't remember where I saw this, I think it might have been motorsport.com or somewhere like that. I can't remember exactly where, but apparently in Iwata in Japan, Yamaha's headquarters, apparently there's been a lot of internal movements within their MotoGP division. And a lot of their Japanese staff have been redeployed to European positions to work on the MotoGP team. Now, I don't know what that means one way or the other because I'm not a Yamaha executive, obviously. But what I can only assume is that that means that they're putting a lot more impetus on this M1 and they're putting a lot more impetus on its development towards the end of this year and the following two years. And I would guess that is what convinced Fabio to re-extend with Yamaha. I would assume that um, the likes of Marigali and Lynn Jarvis have shown him that they're serious about giving him the bike he finally needs. And if we get Yama, or if we get Fabio a bike that's actually uber competitive, then the rest of the grid could be in real trouble. Yeah, and you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Maybe they have already an engine on the um, in the factory where they say, okay, this one is good, but haven't uh, haven't uh, tested it properly in MotoGP. But maybe they have some insights. You don't know. Imagine Just a Yamaha V4. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't assume uh, that they will redevelop the whole engine, but would be funny though. But it also would have been kind of embarrassing to uh, to say, okay, our concept failed. We need to adapt the other ones. So yeah. pretty much like KDM with the steel frame, same but different. But yeah, imagine uh, the other Yamahas uh, with a strong engine. Darren Binder did good today. He finished Darren in 12th. Binder did really well today. Uh, Frankie finished in 13th. And uh, my understanding is that he's struggling to keep corner speed and struggling uh, to be on the brakes because that's A, where a lot of Fabio's time comes from because it obviously doesn't come from the, sta uh, from the straights. And um, yeah, if they can fix this whole issue because Frankie's making progress, he said it's a step in the right direction what they did. Darren Binder is developing. There's also this uh, huge speculation uh, what's happening with the Yamaha satellite team because RNF won't be the Yamaha satellite team. It will be the Aprilia um, satellite team. So you don't know if they will bring a Yamaha team in and who will ride the Yamaha. I'm pretty confident that they will get a satellite team because Yamaha is such a big name. If they want one, they will get one. And yeah. Um, yeah, this is still uh, open. And I believe that if they make some one or two great moves with riders, that they can be uh, can be uh, dangerous next year. Yeah, um, I totally agree. Um, just a brief note on the other Yamaha riders. 
Got to give a lot of props to Darren Binder finishing P12 and Morbidelli P13. Uh, a lot of improvement, a lot of development from them. Yes, a lot of critics and haters are going to say that other people crashed out, but you got to stay on the bike to win. It's the age-old thing. You know, you can criticize them all you want, but they stayed on when everybody else didn't. It is what it is. Um, yeah, very, very happy with Darren Bender. Got some good points there. Morbidelli, I'm happy to see him starting to get back into the swing of things again. Like you said, and you're absolutely right, he, he said his issues have been corner entry and breaking, which um, are obviously things that require a lot of confidence. you got to be able to do that really well, because if not, you'll back out of every corner entry you ever go into. And like you said as well, which you're absolutely right about, Fabio makes up his time and he beats people on corner entry and breaking because he can't do it on the streets. He doesn't have the power to. So what he does is he's able to outbreak other people and use the Yamaha's ability to get the best corner entry and flick it back out again. That's all I wanted to say. Really happy with both of them. And just a quick note on the satellite team. I think you're right. If Yamaha want two more bikes on the grid, they will get two more bikes on the grid because they're too big of a name and too big of an organization not to. And there will be a wealth of people who want their names on the grid. There's no question about it at all. I mean, you've got Tech 3 with KTM. You've got LCR with Honda. Another brand is going to want that association with Yamaha. They just are they're that big of a name. So I would not be shocked at all if we got the Aprilia satellite team and a new Yamaha satellite team. And I'd actually be excited to see it because two new riders with a good bike could be another Patronus. It really, really could. Yeah. And uh, one quick note before we move on. Andrea Dovizioso, uh, I don't know what happened to him. There uh, has been... Uh, zero uh, explanation on the broadcast uh, on the results it says uh, plus seven laps so that means he uh, got like seven laps before the end i don't know what happened it wasn't uh, at least i didn't recognize it on the broadcast maybe i was uh, um, wasn't paying attention for five seconds could be possible i don't know but um, in general, in general, I, I have a big problem with the broadcast because you don't see much what's happening behind like P5 or something like this. Uh, occasionally when Mark Marcus is uh, on the back, you see it because it's Mark Marcus, but uh, I don't need to see uh, like a couple of laps of Fabio uh, with five second gap and then Aleish and uh, Martin and Juan Zak with like a half a second gap. I don't need to see this. I want to see the battles in the midfield because I want to be entertained and I'm not entertained where just uh, some riders are lapping um, lap after lap with the same gap. This is not interesting to me. What's interesting is like Remy Gardner. He fought uh, through the pack. He started P20. Not a Remy, by the way. Yeah, Brilliant he uh, finished P11. We will get to this later, but um, also the rookie battle in Qatar where uh, we had four rookies battling it out for the last point. We didn't see anything and I have a big problem with this and I would like Dorna to fix it if this is possible because... Uh, Yeah, it's getting ridiculous that we only see like the top five riders and occasionally someone behind, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, it's something I'm not a fan of at all either. And it's something that I'm really glad you bring up. Um, you know, I don't just want to see everybody who's at the front. I know who's at the front. You've just shown me who's at the front. 
show me a bit of the midfield battle, show me the battle towards the rear. I want to see people who are actually making up the rest of the pack trying to climb up through the race. Fabio's ahead by five seconds. I know he's ahead. I've seen it for the last five minutes straight. Show me, you know, Brad, Brad Bender and Oliveira, to their credit, did a lot of good work climbing up to eighth and ninth. Show me something like that. You know, like you said, Remy made it up to P11. Show me him climbing up. You know, the thing is, is we see a lot of the, we do see a lot of crashes and a lot of battling at the front because that's where a lot of action happens. But the things like Davidsioso retiring, you know, other guys not finishing like Bezeki, we just about caught. You know, um, I'm trying to think of the other example. Um, like did Gian Antonio? I don't think I saw that either. There's a yeah, lot they, of they showed the replay of the crash, but yeah, but we didn't see it in real time. We didn't get to see why he crashed out. You know, there's so much action we're missing out on by only focusing on the front five or six riders. Give us a bit of variety and show us everybody else as well. You know, it's it sounds like a bit of a naff complaint, but don't just show us, you know, everybody at the front. Show us the people working their way up the pack as well, because it does get boring. I, I I agree with you. Yeah, and I mean we had like five replays of the Nakagami crash, which was too bad in itself. And uh, apparently everybody is fine. Alex Rins kind of injured his left wrist and uh Takaki Nakagami got uh, uppercutted by uh, by Peko Benya's rear tire, but seemingly everybody is more or less fine. But um, yeah, I don't need to see this crash five times and then nothing else because it's it's to your point. It's very difficult to time every crash in real time correctly. But I would rather see a replay, for example, of the Di Gian Antonio crash and understand why it happened. You know, maybe a, a battle where you see someone crashing, you, you can kind of understand why, uh, why they crashed or how the race unfolded for them, you know. And this is completely missing. We don't, basically, we don't know nothing uh, except the top five, six, seven riders, you know. And this is yeah. this is bad for me because uh, I'm here to get entertained, and I would rather see a battle for the last point between four riders than uh, a rider at the front with five second gap. You know, this is basically it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And it's like we've just said there already. You know, Remy started towards the very back of the grid this race. And he managed to work his way up to finishing 11th. I want to see how he did that. You know, I want to see him fighting with the, with the Michele Piros, the Spargaros, people like that. I want to see him, like, this is the best finish he's ever had in the Premier class. I want to see him fighting for that. And I want to see him with the likes of Raul Fernandez's and how they're doing. You know, bigger names who are towards the back, like Jack Miller, who only finished 14th. Show me a bit of that as well and how they bounce back from that. I don't just want to see the front six every single race because we know what they're doing. Give us a bit of variety, Dorna. We do want to see something else. Yeah, and maybe if it's uh, impossible to show it uh, too much in real time because of sponsorship money, maybe Monster, when they are leading the race with Fabio, they will complain if they don't get enough TV time, which is understandable. They're putting a lot of money in there, but at least show some replays. Uh, tell a little bit more of the other stories because a race is telling so many stories 
and uh, you are pretty much reading only the first page uh, when you focus on the top five. And it would be nice to uh, get a feel for what's going on behind, not necessarily uh, putting the camera all on this uh, midfield or towards the back, but just give us a little bit more where we can understand what's going on and follow the race along, see some replays, see some overtakes and not just the riders at the front. So yeah, that's basically it. I mean, they, they showed the Nakagami crash like five times and I don't know what he was uh, thinking. He completely ruined Panko's uh, chance of winning the championship by now pretty much because it's uh, with Fabio's consistency it's getting very, very, very difficult to catch him. And uh, I mean, I guess now is the time to discuss the crash because it took uh, Peko out, it took Alex Rins out, and Takaka Nakagami just went too aggressive into the first corner. Uh, his uh, front tire slipped and the rest is history. And I don't understand how you can... Uh, be so aggressive in uh, in the first corner and throw caution to the wind and just say, fuck it, I'm here, I'm gonna break later than you and don't worry about the consequence. I mean, he A, put himself in huge danger, which every rider does and it's a calculated risk, okay, but he put Alex Rins in danger, he put Peko in danger, you don't know which bike is gonna hit who, so you have to be extra careful in the first lap. And usually everybody gets it right, but Takaka Nakagami didn't. And um, last time in Mugello, he was kind of too aggressive and a little bit stubborn when Alex Rins overtook him and took him out because uh, it wasn't shown on the broadcast either, but uh, on the video pass, there was a like, little replay. And it basically uh, was the... I don't remember which turn uh, name it was, but after the Ari Beata Karnas to Chicane, uh, where Alex Rins um, overtook him and on the exit, so the second corner of the Chicane, Alex Rins was on the inside, was carrying uh, the speed outside of the corner. So naturally he was driving outside and Taka Nakagami was on the outside where there was no way to go, but Alex Rins is ahead. So I would uh, like a rider to close the throttle a little bit and just live to fight for another day. But he just stayed there, stayed on the throttle aggressive and uh, they touched and Alex Rins crashed, which isn't necessarily the smarter thing either, be either because it could have been him also. You don't know this uh, before. So um, to me, Taka is just overly aggressive and trying too hard uh, because he basically knows he's out. In my opinion, he's out uh, to replace Stefan Bradl uh, as the test rider because man he is garbage but uh yeah back to peko and um i just don't see uh, a chance how he can win the championship even if he goes on and wins like five races fabio is so consistent then he will maximum let's say recover in five races 30 points maybe a little bit more, maybe 35-ish, this ballpark, because Fabio is so consistent at the front, I don't see it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not even I'm not even sure where to start with all of this. Um, I guess I'll start at the crash and take it from there. Um, Takaki Nakagami, I have no idea what the hell he was thinking. Um, I just saw the race back there, actually, before we came on air, and Initially, 
I actually wasn't sure what Nakagami had done wrong. I thought he'd just taken the corner a little later than everybody else. But when I watched it back, he completely overshot it, you know, shot from one side of the track over to the other, over to where Alex Rins was, tried to recover it by braking, folded the front end, put his visor into the rear tire of, of Paco Banyaya, and then knocked Alex Rins flying two weeks in a row. Um, I got to be honest, I don't know what the hell he was thinking, probably because he wasn't. And uh, Nakagami has become the new Darren Bender from Moto3 last year. You know, from going from one of the most cool and composed riders to one of the most just non-thinking riders, it's remarkable. Um, I think you're probably right, Leo, um, because I was trying to think of a reason for this. And the only thing I can think of is that the silly season talk has finally cracked Taka. I think he realizes he's on his way out and he's trying so desperately to overcompensate for it that he's now taking out other riders. And even worse now, he's taking himself out as well. And if he's not careful, race direction are going to start sanctioning him heavily because that's two weeks in a row and Alex wins. All right. You know, maybe the first week there was a little bit of an argument if you really, really wanted to. But there was no argument for this one. There was no defense whatsoever. He came over, he took him out at the very beginning of a race. And now he's taken out Paco Banyaya as well. And he's lucky he's not severely injured with it. Um, I think you're right. I think he, he's probably going to be Honda's test rider and they get rid of Stefan Bradl, even though he's done really good work uh, for the most nope. part. I think, he, I, well, he's done some good things. Nope. He's done like here and there. <laughs> I disagree. Fair. I completely disagree, but we will discuss this later when we get to Honda. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I try and give Bradl his credit where it's due because he is a former world champion, but he will be out because they need someone who's just going to bring something different, and Nakagami will bring that. As for Alex Rins, who is no longer Alex Bins through his own fault, um, I feel really sorry for him, because he's been robbed of two good race finishes consecutively by Nakagami, and he has every right to be pissed off, because I would be. I absolutely would be. Um. You know, Rins has come into some really good form. He's a very considerate rider for the most part. He's very aware of what's going on around him. He, he generally is of the live to fight another day philosophy. If he's in that situation with another rider, he will let them go to get the result. Um, it's something he does a lot better than last year. And now he's suffering for that, and he should not be. And if I'm Rins, I am extremely angry. I'm extremely irritated. And, you know, there's not much more I can say for him because he's feeling everything I already know he does. Um, I hope his wrist isn't injured too badly and that he's able to come back uh, in two weeks in, in Germany, I believe is where we're going to next. So I hope he's back for that and he's okay. But he should absolutely feel aggrieved because I would. As for Paco Banyaya, um, you know... I don't know if the championship is fully out the window, but he's made it so much harder for himself now. Um, you know, I just think the coolness and the composure of Fabio is making a lot of people break 
And I don't think Paco's broken yet by any means, but he is starting to crack. And it's like last season where Fabio's composure is going to get him another title if he plays his cards right. Fabio is the modern Eddie Lawson, steady Eddie Lawson from the 1980s. People who know will know what I'm talking about. Eddie Lawson became world champion by being willing to accept the second places, the third places, the fourth places, and living to fight another day, as you said. And Fabio is like that to a T. He's kind of like Iceman from the original Top Gun movie. He doesn't make mistakes. He's cool. He's composed. If he can win, he will win as he did today. But if not, it's okay. There's always another race for him. And that is where he thrives better than anybody. Psychologically, he is just, he's just there. He just is. And this is what Paco has to start doing as well. Um, I think in many ways I feel sorry for Paco because being the man at Ducati is such a pressurized situation. You know, when you, because Ducati are, you know, arguably the highest you can get, depending on who you support pretty much. And so he feels that pressure every weekend, every race, and he's got to learn to manage that better. He's basically got to do what Fabio did. He's got to get his head right. He's got to get his composure back, and it will start coming back to him. But as for this season, I think there is a strong argument that the title's gone because even if he does come back, and even if he blows the rest of the field away for the next four or five races, Fabio's still going to be there. It's not like Fabio's going to DNF every race because he doesn't. He's going to be getting second, third places. He's going to be eating into the deficit. He's going to be adding more points to his own tally. So Paco, I feel sorry for because this wasn't his fault, but he's got to he's got to manage as much as he can for the rest of the season, or it could be curtains. Yeah, and I mean, uh, what I don't understand is uh, Taka pretty much ruined. Uh... Peko's chances of winning the championship. We could agree on this. He made it mm -hmm. almost impossible, let's say. And um, race direction has no punishment at all for him right now. I don't know what they will do uh, later on, but they uh, they penalized uh, Tatsuki Suzuki last uh, time out in Mugello for making uh, for making Dennis Enchi crash, which was to me a racing incident. And uh, Tony Abolini, we covered this. We had this wobble inside um, uh, of Sam Laws where he eventually took him out. They penalized him and they didn't penalize um, Takaka Nakagami, which to me is uh, ridiculous because you're basically punishing the outcome and not the crime. Let's say metaphorically, you want to uh, kill someone and shoot him, you get punished. But if you shoot, uh, if you miss, It's still attempted murder, but you don't get penalized at all in the MotoGP world. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Because they're just punishing the outcome. And I believe uh, this has to change. I believe that what Nakagami did is far worse than what Avellino and Suzuki did combined. Because those were just racing incidents. And he's a repeated offender when we take Mugello into consideration. So... I don't get what the race direction is doing. I mean, I usually don't get what they're doing because they're mm -hmm. hugely incompetent, but uh, it is what it is. Um, yeah, back to the racing. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about Jorge Martin because 
he seems to be back. He seems to have figured out his front feeling. And when we have to talk, when we um, talk about Jorge Martin, we have to talk about Enea Bastianini because it's uh, always the discussion who gets the second uh, factory seat and Enea uh, crashes once again. I mean, he, he's either win it or bin it. And um, I don't, I don't necessarily know who would I um, choose, but um, Jorge Martin, when he is back and he will have the surgery for his nerve damage, when he is fully back, I believe that Jorge Martin is the better of the two. Yeah, this is um, this is a really difficult um, situation because you have. On the one hand, you have Vinaya Bastianini, who has been little short of fantastic for most of the season. I mean, he, the guy has three race wins already, more than he probably ever could have dreamed of realistically. Yet he is winning or Bennett. He's the personification of that very thing. He'll either go out and he'll win or he will crash out like he did today. You know, he's like this. He's up, he's down, he's up, he's down. And then you've got Jorge Martin, who... I think is genuinely one of the most gifted riders on the grid. I think he is sensationally talented as a motorcycle rider and he's, he's no age. He's no age at all. But the problem that you have, you've got problems with both, but the problem you have with Jorge Martin is the damage that he's taking physically. You know, whenever he crashes out, which isn't actually that often, The problem is when he crashes out, he crashes out big, which is a bit like Mark Marquez, actually, funny enough. When he crashes out, he does damage to himself. It's not like he, it's not like the front end folds and he slides out. Every crash that he goes out is a major high side or he breaks an ankle or he does this or he does that. And now he has nerve damage, which could be a really, really big problem for the future. But... Martin brings an X factor for me that Bastianini doesn't, which is when when Martin is on form and when he's not crashing, he's always challenging for the win. And he's pretty much breaking the qualifying lap records every time that he's out in the track, which is just incredible. So Ducati have got a really, really tough decision to make because it's, well, technically there's three choices if you really want to throw it in there. You've got Zarco, you have Bastianini, or you have Martin. The reason why I wouldn't put Zarco in there is that I think he's too inconsistent, and he's I think he's 30 years old now as well. So you're not going to get the longevity out of Zarco that you would get out of a Bastianini or a Martin. So that, for me, rules Zarco out, even though I like him a lot. That leaves you with Martino, that leaves you with Bastianini. And it's it's at the point now where it's almost six of one and half a dozen of the other. Because one brings one thing that one doesn't, but the other person brings uh, attributes that the other doesn't. If it was up to me, I would be leaning towards Jorge Martin. But I can see why Ducati have got a real dilemma on their hands as well. Yeah, and uh, let's talk a little bit about the silly season again. There are rumors <laughs> that uh, Miguel Oliveira will go to Grazini. And that means that Inea is leaving because I don't think uh, they will uh, throw uh, Digi out. So where is he going? The only valuable uh, 
place inside the Ducati family for him, which is more valuable than the Grisini team is the factory seat. He doesn't want to go to Pramac. He doesn't want to go to Valentino Rossi. And uh, if you gave him the chance, uh, stay at Grisini or go to um, go to the factory, I believe he will just take the factory because of prestige. Um, but on the other hand, if you uh, give Jorge Martin uh, the um, if you don't give Jorge Martin the factory seat, I believe he will be extremely pissed off. But there is a possibility of staying with Pramac uh, because it's simply the best seat, in my opinion, you can have in MotoGP. You get full factory support without the factory's uh, responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, look at all the events uh, all the factory riders have to go. At Pramac, you don't have to uh, in this extent, I mean. And um, yeah, my point basically is that... Uh, When you take all the rumors into, into consideration, it looks like Bastianini is uh, going there. But I would tend to take Martin because uh, MotoGP does its best to prevent overtaking. So uh, qualifying becomes more and more important. And uh, who's the best qualifier on the grid? I believe it's Jorge Martin. And also from a talent perspective, let's say we have like an NFL draft type uh, scenario for the MotoGP. Uh, the first pick would either be Jorge Martin or Fabio. One That's of the true. two. One That's of the true. two. I don't uh, think there will be uh, uh, anybody who can compete with uh, those two when you consider their age, their talent, the upside they have. And uh, yeah, so I would take uh, Jorge Martin as well. But um, Juan Zarco, I don't see it because uh, I believe we've seen the ceiling uh, of uh, Juan Zarco and the ceiling is second place. And when you want like a better Jack Miller version, go for Juan Zarco. If you want to solidify uh, Peko as your top man and uh, have like a solid number two rider, then Juan Zarco is the uh, perfect man. But if you uh, want to have another challenger for the title, you need to go with either Bastianini and Jorge Martin. And they are good in their own right. So difficult, but uh, I believe because of all the rumors that it will be Bastianini who will be moving up to the factory seat. And considering all the options that Jorge Martin has, it will be either Repsol Honda or it will be um, Pramac because Pramac is a pretty uh, good seat in my opinion. Leo, I actually have a deeper question here. And if you're watching this, this is something I'd love your feedback on as well. Is there any real benefit to being in the Lenovo Ducati seat? Because I think Pramac is actually better than the factory seat. And I'm going to tell you why, aside from the reasons that you've just outlined. You don't have to go to those events that you mentioned. You're absolutely true. Um, you don't have the pressure of the factory team because basically people's opinions on you change from race to race if you race for the factory team. And there's one other big benefit as well. Not only do you get full factory support, but you actually have a bike that you know more about because, because you get a year-old bike in some cases from Ducati. There's actually more development and knowledge about that bike than having to mold the new bike that you get in the factory team. So for me, and this is, of course, just my opinion, if I was Jorge Martin, based on what I'm capable of and based on the results that I'm getting, 
I would actually let Bastianini go into the factory team because I'm not seeing the benefits uh, that outweigh leaving Pramac. I actually think you're right. I think right now on the grid, Pramac Ducati is the best seat of any manufacturer or any team. You've got an unbelievable bike that's regularly topping the speed charts. And you have Jorge Martin, who's molded to that bike like a glove, who can ride it unlike anybody else. And you're just able to qualify brilliantly as well with factory Ducati support. The question that I'm asking is, is there any real benefit to moving up anyway, aside from name? I don't think there is. There are two or three. First one is prestige, because you're the factory rider, you're the top dog. And if you're in a highly competitive um, environment, which is MotoGP, and you have a lot of uh, competitors, a lot of alpha male uh, type of human beings, you want to be on the top, you want to be world champion, and you want to be uh, a top of the food chain rider at your manufacturer. So the prestige is A, you want to be the factory rider. B, the money is uh, a lot better, I would assume. I don't know, but I would assume that uh, you get more uh, sponsorship money and more money from the manufacturer. And the third part is I tend to believe that the factory riders have more say in which direction the bike will get developed. But right now, if you're Jorge Martin and you see what's happened to Jack Miller, who was doing brilliantly at Pramac, and you see what's happening right now with him in factory Ducati, would you really move up and leave that behind? I get what you're saying. I do. I think those are valid factors. But to me, the only real factory-worthy seats right now are probably factory Yamaha, if you're a Fabio Quartararo. And maybe, well, actually, Aprilia doesn't count because they are the only bikes on the grid. Realistically, if you're factory yamaha or factory honda it's worth it but if it's factory ducati i'm not really seeing the practical benefits that outweigh leaving pramac that's just my opinion but i'm not seeing it yeah but would you let the development of the bike be in the hands hands of other riders or would you rather what develop what he's doing now jorge doesn't have a say in the development and he's doing better than peco in some areas does he really need that? Jorge seems like he can work with whatever's given to him. I don't believe this is true. First of all, I believe he has a say in the development. I just uh, tend to believe that the factory riders have more of a say where the development is heading to. Um, second of all, uh, I, I believe that when you have a good bike now, you shouldn't rest on your laurels. You should uh, develop it further because we've seen how quick it can go downhill. So you very should very always position yourself in a position. This is also true for everybody's personal life, you know. Uh, position um, yourself in a position where you can, uh, where you are most likely to succeed and set yourself uh up for the future because if you are the factory riders and you say hey i need this i need this i need this um in order to be competitive you a suit the bike more to your standards and b you give a direction where the manufacturer is heading and i believe for example peco has more to say uh, about the development of the dismo cdg than Jorge martin 
And I believe this is more the reason, you know? Well, that's fair. I'm, I'm not mad at it. But um, I think the one thing we can say for certain, rounding off Ducati, is that it looks like Miguel Oliveira is going to Grassini. And that means one way or the other, Enea Bastianini is moving up. Now, if it was me, if I was Paolo Chiabatti or Davide Tardazzi, I would put Jorge Martin in the factory team and I would move Enea Bastianini up to Pramac. That's what I would do. Whether that's what they're going to do, whether that's what Enea wants to do is a completely different story. I just think with Jorge right now, he suits what Ducati needs more than Enea does because I think he'll bring more stability to the team alongside Banyaya than Bastianini would. Because right now, Ducati, you don't need someone who's going to win a race one week and then crash the next. You need that rider to mature for maybe another year or two and then put in place the one who has more of that right now. So like it, it's pretty much a 50-50 toss-up between whether it's um, Bastianini or whether it's Martin. I'm just saying that's what I would do right now. But let me know if you disagree down in the comments and why. Yeah, fair enough. Um, enough of the silly season. Uh, I still believe <laughs> we needed a separate episode for this, um, which, by the way, is in the works. Uh, I wanted to do it in a summer break, but now with all the speculation heating up, I would like to do it uh, between Assen and Sachsenring or maybe between now and uh, Sachsenring. But I haven't uh, decided yet, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still. It will up, be dropping uh, soon, though. Yeah, but because I think it's more fun to discuss about these uh, things when you don't have much evidence of what's going to happen. If everybody That's has true. a contract signed, it's more or less boring. So uh, I would like to move this a little bit uh, further, or no, move it, uh, move well, it. Ahead and uh, get along with it. Maybe, maybe next week. Maybe between uh, Assen and uh, Sachsenring. I don't know. Yeah, Aprilia. I mean, Alejandro Spagaro. I feel so sorry for him because he has this super cute uh, helmet design for his daughter. It's his home GP. He finally has a package where he can win. Uh, he dominates the whole weekend and. Okay, it didn't work out with the win. Fabio was better. Deal with it. A second place is still amazing, even uh, when you take out the championship. If, of course, the second place, it's uh, the best place you can have behind Fabio uh, when you're uh, competing with him for the championship. And he pretty much blows it because um, there's this tower in Catalonia where they have the, uh, the positions and the laps. And uh, apparently in Catalonia, it's uh, zero when there's the last lap and he thought the race is over. So um, yeah, he started celebrating and uh, fell back to, I believe fell behind uh, Luca Marini and uh, managed to overtake him again. And uh, yeah, I feel so sorry for him. I mean, it's his own stupidity. He needs to do better and he should have known because it's literally in his backyard. I mean, it's not like they're there for the first time. Uh, he should have known. And to be fair, he completely owned it, uh, owned it but it's, uh, it's real sad because I would just love to see him on the podium and I felt so sorry for him. Oh, Leish, what are you doing? Oh, God, it was, oh, it was painful. It was so painful to see because Fabio was still accelerating. 
and fe- and I actually thought when Aleish slowed down that he had some sort of really cruel engine issue. And um, I know we were talking about this before we came on. I saw him slowing down. I thought, oh no, he has his gearbox or something hasn't gone, has it? And then I saw him waving, and it's like, please don't tell me he thinks this race is over. And then it, that was the case, and I thought, oh, Aleish, you've thrown it away, you've binned it. Now he. Joan Mir, I think, um, ended up flying past him for fourth, if I'm not wrong. And then Luca Marini came past, who got fifth, and then he ended up going back into sixth. At least he got fifth back. It isn't the end of the world. But the reason it feels so devastating to Aleish is that he had, you know, a diamond-encrusted result in second, you know, 20 points in the bag for the title charge. That kind of thing is invaluable. You know, Fabio Quartararo will tell you that better than anybody can. Getting 20 points from somewhere like Catalonia is priceless, literally. And he's thrown away, what, five, six, seven points just from not recognizing that it isn't the end of the race. Um, look, I'm not going to stick the boot into Aleish, mostly because I really, really like Aleish Spargo. I know we both do. Um, but you got to be aware of that. You just do um, right, wrong, or indifferent. You have to be aware of when the race is finished and when it isn't. I know, to his credit, Aleish came out and owned it, and he said that he didn't actually look over at the pit wall to his team. Instead, he looked up at the tar, and that's what threw him, as you said. But I feel really sorry for him because that that's just a sickening feeling, and I've never seen that happen to anybody. The closest I've ever seen that happen was a few years ago i think it was um i think it was a race in brazil in their championship i think it was in the brazil superbike championship or something like that and somebody was leading and they ended up wheeling towards the end of the line thinking that they'd won and they ended up losing it because someone pipped them at the line and that's the closest thing i can compare it to but Aleish, man, I feel sorry for you because it's just, the, it must be the worst feeling in the world. That's worse than crashing, in my opinion, because sometimes crashing, there's nothing you can do. But Aleish knows he's thrown this away and he's going to be more determined than ever to get it back at the session ring. Yeah, uh, I mean, he had a good pace. It was not he the pace. He had a brilliant pace. Yeah, I mean, it was not the pace I necessarily accept, uh, expected. Because he was so dominant on uh, all the practices and qualifying. But um, as soon as he got past uh, Jorge Martin, I thought, okay, he will break away pretty much like he did in Jerez. But he didn't. Uh, fair enough. Still second. I mean, uh, it's, it's okay. Fabio probably was just much better than I expected. Not necessarily um, Aleish being worse. But... Um, also, Maverick, he is uh, very, very good in parts of the weekend. In other parts, he still has to improve. Saturdays, if Maverick qualifies on the front row and doesn't have to overtake so many uh, riders, he will be much better, pretty much like Alasius, because the Aprilia seems to struggle with overtaking more than the other bikes. Alasius is complaining about front tire pressure, and uh, Maverick, he... Uh, he manages to overtake a lot of riders on the back, but um, he was stuck behind Luca Marini and couldn't get past where you know, okay, Maverick, when he gets clean air, he will be faster. And he had the soft rear tire in, which 
basically begged for a good first five laps. And yeah, that's the area where Aprilia needs to improve because LH2, he had uh, issues with overtaking in the past. And um, yeah, I thought he would be able to break away. I thought Maverick uh, would maybe be better, but seventh is still okay, uh, considering that he has the contract in the back right now. Fair enough, develop, but he seemed to be happy, so I'm happy too. If Maverick <laughs> is happy, I'm happy. And uh, yeah, Aprilia needs to uh, fine-tune uh, a little bit there, you know? Yeah, um, I got to be honest with Maverick. I was actually quite happy with his result. Um, I think seventh is very decent, and considering his Saturday, as you said, um, he's definitely adapting to Aprilia really well, and he seems extremely happy there, which is the priority, of course. Um, yeah, he, he he's adapting really well. He's getting some very positive results. Um, but the key point with Maverick Vinales is what you just mentioned there. His Saturdays, if he can improve those, he will be winning races. I think that is a very first statement because his Fridays generally tend to be really good. I think FP1 or FP2, him and Aleish did a 1-2 for Aprilia ahead of, um, I can't remember who was ahead of, but they did a 1-2 in one of the FP sessions. And then Saturdays, he keeps getting mixed up. Like sometimes he has to go through Q1 and then Q2. He's always in that seventh, eighth, ninth um, area. Um, if he can improve that and if he can get that nailed down, him and Aleish will be a real force at the front of the grid because he is an exceptionally talented rider. Even when he was at Yamaha, we knew he was talented. But if he can get that together and get that nailed down, then he will start getting the results that he dreamed of, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I believe he can match Aleish, at least. Oh, yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. Um, like, Maverick, even when he was at Yamaha, and even though it was funny at the time, we, we both agreed that he was one of the most gifted riders in the grid. You don't get the wins that he did in the performances he did by being average. You just don't. Maverick was brought in to partner Aleish and to match the results that Aleish gets, and he's more than capable of it. We know this. If he can improve the qualifying and get that one lap pace on the Aprilia down and fine-tuned, he will be matching them. I'm totally with you because he's capable of it. He's proven he can do it. All he has to do now is do the Nike thing and just do it. That's it. Yeah, yeah and uh, lucky for him, there's a test coming up. Maybe that's uh, the reason why he's happy. So because he has to test again and can finish the test uh, first. So Maverick... Uh, doing uh, his uh, role as a test rider um, <laughs> is where he excels. But you know who needs this test dearly, which is KTM. And uh, I prepared a little bit uh, something about Miguel Oliveira. Um, last year, he was um, over 30 seconds faster over the race than today. Okay, there are different circumstances, different track conditions, and he was uh, fighting for positions where you are, you tend to be slower, but you don't want to be half a minute slower over a race distance where you won last year. And Fabio actually was uh, exactly as fast as he was um, last year, 
where he had this issue with his leather. So the pace was slower than last year. It's evident, but uh, it's it's different because Fabio was eight eight seconds uh, slower than Miguel was last year. So uh, the winning pace dropped off about 10 seconds. And if you're Miguel uh, to triple this is unexcusable. Rather, if you're KTM to triple this, because I believe it's not Miguel's fault. Uh, I mean, Binder and Oliveira did damage limitation. There's nothing much to discuss here because they, A, we don't know what they did because the broadcast didn't show anything. And uh, B, it's just the same old KTM story, uh, which we discussed a thousand of times. So, um, yeah, that's basically for the factory boys what I have to say. Yeah, it's hard to add on to that because that is pretty much all you can say. Um, I mean, dropping 30 seconds from last year is abominable. It really is. That's the kind of figure I would have expected from a Yamaha, if I'm being honest. Um, if it had been Fabio or Frankie or someone like that, I could have understood it because of the issues that they have. I would have understood it. But for KTM to drop half a minute over a race pace is it's it is unacceptable you're absolutely correct it is unacceptable and you know bender and Oliveira did a good job with damage limitation perfect phrase to use there but as a project and as a factory team your aspirations cannot be damage limitation every race because you're going to get nowhere. It cannot be reduced to that. It's got to be something more. You've got to be forward-looking and forward-thinking. And the fact that that bike, that RC16, has regressed so much in a year, that is very bothersome to me because every bike, with the exception of Yamaha, has either gone forward or gone to the side and the KTM has gone backwards. If anything, they've added a reverse gear to the bike because they've gone backwards so badly. It's it's unexplainable. And don't get me wrong, 8th and ninth on paper is not the worst thing in the world. If, if anybody else looked at that, they would say respectable result. But to be 30 seconds off the pace, that there's a problem there. There really is. And KTM need to get their shit together and fast because they are spiraling and they yeah. are spiraling further and further and further away from race wins. Aprilia have kicked it up two gears. Suzuki kicked it up a gear. Yamaha looked like they might be finally showing signs after about six to seven years of doing something. KTM have got to get it together and fast or they're going to be in real trouble. Yeah, and uh, regarding the difference to last year, a race has many, um, many factors in where you can think, okay, maybe that's the reason why he's slow, he was stuck in traffic, whatever. Um, but in qualifying, he was uh, three-tenths of a second slower than last year, while other people were out there setting all-time uh, lap records. So something is wrong with KTM. They're developing backwards, and this is not good because... It looks like another speculation about silly season that Miguel is leaving and there's nothing certain with Ralph Fernandez. Uh, there were rumors last year that he didn't want to be here and I don't think this uh, season necessarily changed his mind. 
Remy doesn't have a contract. Uh, I don't know what's up with Remy. Uh, I asked him. He said he doesn't know either. He said if KTM wants him, he will be back. But basically, that's the state. Um, and he made it already public that if he doesn't find anything in MotoGP, he will go to WSBK, which isn't necessarily a good look. Uh, when you're a manufacturer and you're in, um, you have the reigning Moto2 champion to not give him like half a season until you make a decision. It's, it's bonkers to me. And you do need some consistency in order to develop the bike. And if they're cleaning the house, bringing Jack Miller, Ralph Fernandez leaves, hopefully Remy stays because I believe uh, that a structure is important. And B, I believe that KTM as a general uh, manufacturer, is a good uh, employer. So I hope he stays because he had a great race. We uh, touched on this uh, briefly. I don't need to repeat myself there. He was the top rookies. He was uh, six seconds behind uh, Miguel. He, um, yeah, he improves constantly on the bike, which is uh, important. And Rolf Fernandes, he got his first points. So they both uh, stayed on the bike, which is important to gain experience, to gain knowledge. And um, I don't necessarily understand how you can blame, if you're KTM, how you can blame Remy in any uh, shape or form because he's outperforming his, uh, his teammate big time. And when we uh, look back last year, they were pretty much uh, on par where Remy got the better of Raul pretty much because of his experience. Raul was a rookie, but now they're both rookies and uh, they, they're they doing both the best they can with uh, a bike, which is basically a piece of shit. And uh, it's not like the factory bi uh, bikes are doing th something uh, extraordinary. They're still struggling. They have simply more experience on the bike and understand a little bit more about the bike. So... I think Remy is uh, doing a great job. He's outperforming his rookie teammate, which is pretty much the only comparison you can make because the others are on a Ducati or a Yamaha and the Yamaha is pretty rookie friendly. So I believe uh, he's doing good. He proved it. Uh, he seemed to be happy. And uh, yeah, I hope, I really hope that they uh, extend him or if not, I would like to see him at Pramac. Yeah. Yeah, I like those shouts a lot. Um, when it comes to Remy Gardner, and to a degree Raul Fernandez as well, I suppose you have to grip them both in this, you can't ask them to do any more than they're already doing because they're rookies. The nature of being a rookie is that you're there to learn for the first season, get used to the bigger bike, and pretty much survive and not crash out as much as you can. That's basically being a rookie. It's the second season and the third season and the probably whatever season beyond that you start developing and you start kicking on to get the big results. And the fact that Remy is in this limbo is quite shocking to me personally because, he, like you said, he's been consistently outperforming his teammate Raul, who's been making all the noise about being, and I know we joke about this, but Raul's been, you know, Raul made all this noise in preseason about being the moral champion and basically saying that he would outperform Remy at every race when I'm not sure there's a race he has outperformed Remy at. And KTM One. have a real problem. In Indonesia One. in the rain. 
yeah, I mean, an anomaly race. Let's be totally honest. Anybody could have done that. Um, the problem with KTM is that they've got substandard machinery and they don't seem to be managing their riders that well at all. I mean, like we've, like we've, I mean, this is covering old ground. Raul Fernandez, I don't think, wanted to go to KTM. I think he was holding out for a Yamaha offer that just never came or couldn't come, whatever the reason was. Remy has done his best to be a team player by stepping up to KTM and doing the best he can on a piece of shit Tech 3 bike. Let's just be truthful here. That is what it is. So really, KTM have got a situation now where they're going to need to fill a Tech 3 seat, possibly, and they're definitely going to need to fill a factory seat. Now, we think it's going to be Jack Miller going to factory KTM, which is all well and good. Don't get me wrong. I love Jack Miller. But we've got a problem. We need Tech 3 sorted because Tech 3 is going to continue to be a problem until it's addressed. And I'm not sure what you do there, if I'm honest. I think if Yamaha get the satellite team that we mentioned, you might try and go for Raul Fernandez, maybe pair him with Darren Bender, and then you bring in someone into Tech 3 alongside Remy. That's the only thing I can think of. But the point is, one way or the other, KTM needs to address these problems or they will sink them. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you see it pretty much at uh, Honda. A, you need consistency to develop the bike. If you don't have consistency, everything's going downhill. And um, the second thing is, I think you can evaluate a rider properly after three years. You have the rookie season where uh, everything can happen or everything can't happen. And you have the second season where you can improve and get your feet wet um, in the, I would say, to be get your feet wet with developing the bike, understanding the bike, you know, set the, uh, set the base in the rookie season and then move uh, to forward from uh, that on. And in the third season, I would say you completely understand uh, the tires, the bike, the electronics, everything. You have to understand it. You should have developed as a rider to adapt your riding style to the MotoGP class. And uh, you should be able to give some in, uh, inputs to uh, to the manufacturer to, de to develop the bike. And um, Alex Marcus, for example, he did very, very great. But there's a downward trajectory for his uh, career at Honda. He was good in 2020. He was okay in 2021. And he's now consistently the bad, uh, the worst Honda, you know. It doesn't look good. And after three seasons, I think you can uh, say, okay, the rider has it or the rider doesn't. And I don't necessarily think that after rookie season, you can do it, especially if you have the reigning Moto2 champion uh, in your team. So, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope they will, um, they will figure this out and have some continuity. Because if I was KTM, I would maintain both Raul and Remy. And yeah. Uh, so I would say let's uh, skip to Honda because I already touched on uh, touched on Alex Marcus, who did very very good. He had a brilliant start. Um, he started last last because of his uh, incident in uh, FP4, where I don't necessarily agree to let him start because he was whacked and he was concussed. So. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I don't agree with many decisions the medical stuff does at MotoGP. So 
maybe you just have to throw caution out of the window and say fuck it right um, but there's an interesting piece I've read that the concussion protocol of the MotoGP uh, um, of MotoGP basically says if you have you're concussed, you need to be monitored for 24 hours after the crash, which uh, basically isn't uh, possible when you're racing a MotoGP bike. So yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but uh, Alex Marcus did very good. He proved the doctors right. Uh, and he was the best Honda, so kudos to him. Yeah, um, I mean, that doctor that cleared Alex Marquez is either an old school genius or a cigarette smoking chimp. And I'm not too sure which one is the reality at this point. But whichever one it was, and I actually really hope it's the cigarette smoking chimp, whichever one it was, he was vindicated because Alex Marquez did really, really well. One of his best results this season, if not the best, as rock solid 10th. When I got a brilliant start, um, as you said, he started towards the back of the grid, flew past everybody and got a really, really good finish. Um, finished just behind both KTMs and Vinales of Aprilia, of course. And yeah, overall a good result for him. But I do still have the same issues with Alex Marquez that I've always had. I think for the amount of time that he's been in the MotoGP class and the opportunity he's been given, I do I do still expect higher of him. I expect Alex Marquez to be challenging for seventh, sixth place every week. That's where my expectations are. And as good as this weekend is, this is one weekend where he cracks the top 10 just about nearly every other weekend. He's in the myriad of being nowhere, which is where with respect he normally is. So don't get me wrong, I take nothing away from him. It's a great result. But for, for the long run, he, he should be doing more because he's capable of it and he's been given the opportunity for it. So it is what it is. And then... And then talking about the other representative of Honda, Paul Espargaro, just a disappointing race, really. Dead last in 17, 46 seconds behind Fabio Quartararo. Nearly a full minute behind the leader of the race is just disappointing. Um, we've heard rumours about Paul and what his future holds as well, but this race won't have helped those at all. Um I mean, I like Paul, but it's just really disappointing in it. There's no other, there's nothing else really to say. I mean, when you're coming dead last on a Repsol Honda, something's pretty seriously wrong there. Yeah, and uh, if you remember all the replays of the Taka crash, uh, Paul Espargo was right behind. So he was, after the crash, maybe third or fourth, I don't necessarily uh, remember the exact position, but um, he had some tire issue, he said, and dropped back to, to the back of the grid, which is inexcusable. Simply, if you don't have any kind of technical problem there or mechanical problem, whatever it is, uh, this is inexcusable. And um, I believe he's on his way out. And I promised you that I will rant on uh, Stefan Radl because, cool. uh, first of all, he isn't a good test rider because he developed a bike which is basically a piece of shit it sure. worked as long as mark marcus was the mark marcus we all uh, know 
But uh, as soon as Marc Marquez uh, was injured, it was evident that the Repsol Honda or the Honda in general wasn't good. So they developed, they developed, they brought a completely new bike on the grid, which isn't working uh, at all. So they might as well uh, throw this out of the window and give Marc Marquez the old bike back, which he developed. Because if they would have listened to Marc Marquez, they would have had the same bike they had from uh, 2014 to 2019 so uh yeah i don't believe that bradle did necessarily a good job there also pole because i believe that uh honda uh, listened big time on pole and that's why they're so pissed off because he isn't producing on the bike they specifically developed for him but stefan bradle he took his uh took his role as a test rider or replacement rider, fair enough, but he had more than enough time on the bike to develop a good bike, which he simply didn't. And uh, now when you uh, put him in as a wildcard rider in uh, Jerez or uh, now in uh, Catalonia as a replacement for Marc Marcus, the last thing you would want from your test rider is to crash out in the first lap. And he did this in uh, Jerez and he did it in Catalonia. So what's the point of being there? Michele Piro, he he finished ahead of um, ahead of Paul Espargaro oh. in 16th place. I mean, that's perfectly fine. You don't expect from your test rider to uh, fight for top positions. Cool if he does, but if he doesn't, okay. But you expect for him to test things out. And I can almost guarantee you that Stefan Bradl had some kind of new parts uh, what uh, which he was testing and he he only tested the gravel. So I don't know uh, what do you want from him if you're a Honda. And uh, I still believe they should sign Takara Nakagami as a test rider because um, Stefan Bradl isn't doing anything uh, remotely productive for the, fact, uh, for the manufacturer. So I don't know. But this also begs the question, what do you do if you're a Honda? Because we also discussed that you need continuity if you want to develop a MotoGP bike. And what do you have? An incompetent test rider. You have an injured number one rider. You have Paul Espargaro, your number two rider, who is uh, basically on his way out. You have Takaka Nakagami, who would be best suited as the test rider because he understands the bike, he understands the tires and he isn't doing any good, but he's on his way out. You don't know if he gets maybe an offer from a different manufacturer. And uh, you have Alex Marcus who isn't doing anything. And if I'm Honda, I'm cleaning house and uh, um, firing everybody except Mark Marcus because simply he's my only hope. But if you're doing this, you have no continuity at all. Everybody's learning the bike uh, from uh, scratch again mark marcus is on a bike which he didn't want he want another bike the bike he had in 2019 2020 this was his bike and not this uh, piece of shit so what do you do if you're honor you're in a pretty miserable uh, situation because either way you're going you're pretty much uh, fucking up if mark marcus uh, doesn't bail you out yeah, um, it's a very interesting question. And as far as your legendary rants go, that's probably the most factually correct and interesting one that we've had to date, which I was a big fan of, actually well played by you. Um, yeah, if you're if you're Honda headquarters, you've got a real assache here because I don't know what the hell you do, if I'm honest. Um, like you said, you've got a test rider who's done good, but only done good because it's Mark Marquez's bike, and that's pretty much has been his sole job, is working on the bike for Mark. 
you've got a number one who's an alien in terms of talent, but who can't stay healthy. You have a number two who's on his way out because he got the bike he wanted and he can't even make that work. And then you've got Alex Marquez, who realistically is there nepotistically because his brother's Mark Marquez. So realistically, the cleaning house option is a very valid one, and it's probably the one I would go with as well. I think if you want continuity, you keep Nakagami as the test rider because he understands the bike. And when he tried to use Mark Marquez's testing data last year and the year before, he did have some success with it. Not race-winning success, but he did look better. So he at least understands how Mark rides and he's going to be able to find a bit of a better balance. I would be getting rid of Alex Marquez because he just has not been doing enough for the seat that he has. And Paul's probably on his way out anyway. So what's very interesting about all of this, Leo, is that I actually have to throw this back a few episodes because we discussed this very thing. And I think it might have been maybe just before Indonesia, if I'm not wrong. It could have been a little bit before that again. And we basically discussed, you'll probably remember this, but we discussed, would we develop the bike around Mark or around everybody else? And I said I would develop the bike around everybody else because Mark Marquez can't stay healthy. The problem that I have now looking back on that, and I don't retract anything I said, but the problem with what I said on that episode was, is that Mark Marquez with one arm or Mark Marquez with no arms is still better than any other rider Honda can get unless you're Fabio Quartararo. And that is a massive massive problem because what you've done now is even though Mark Marquez is one of the best riders the championships have ever seen love him hate him you can't deny that the problem now is is that you have to keep Mark until he retires because only Mark Marquez can ride Mark Marquez's bike there is no ready-made substitute who can come in and ride that bike the way Mark does it's not like with Yamaha, if something happens to Fabio Quartararo, you can maybe go out and get someone else who can ride it. Or if the Aprilia falls through, you can maybe go for an Alex Rins who could have a whack at riding it. With Mark Marquez, you've got a bike that is basically no front end and it's got good rear grip. And that's why Mark's been so good. The problem is with Honda. They've now they've they've almost listened to me in a way. They've gone and developed the bike so that it has a front end, but still relatively good rear grip so that other people can ride it. But now other people can't ride it. Paula Spargo is crashing out or finishing last in every race. Alex Marquez can't ride it, and Nakagami can't ride it. So now if you're Honda, even if you wanted, which they definitely never would. Even if you wanted to move away from Mark Marquez, you can't because only Mark Marquez can ride the RC213V. So you now have to keep building a bike around an injured rider because no one else can. No one else can use it the way Mark Marquez does. So if you're Honda, which they won't be able to do, but they'll have to try, you're basically going to, for next season, for 2023, you're going to have to go back to the 2019 RC213V for Mark if he's healthy. I know he said his operation in Minnesota was successful. If he is healthy again, you have to go back to that bike and somehow build for life post Mark Marquez as well. 
Now, it's a thankless frigging task how you do that. I'm glad I'm not in Honda's position of having to think of that. But this is the situation Honda put themselves in, Leo. You have to live with Mark Marquez and prepare for life without him. All I'll say is good bloody luck, Honda, because you're going to need all of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is basically the last uh, thing I would like to add uh, to Honda. Um, or rather, I would like to add too, because um, you said that the uh, old Honda was pretty rear grip heavy and loose on the front or not balanced correctly on the front. What Paul told me is that it's actually the opposite. The uh, really? old Honda the old Honda was very, very balanced uh, towards the front, so it had great uh, front uh, stability and Mark Marcus was a motherfucker in every corner. I mean, remember the rear was dangling, he was still overtaking oh. uh, people. It was uh, very spectacular, but the front end of the whole honor was very, very, very good and you had to basically force it into the corners to make it work. Like on a superbike, when you um, when you ride it for the first time, that um, it's stiffer than your normal bike and you have to make it work by forcing the thing because it's so stiff you have to push it uh, really to work and basically the honda is a level up from this towards a normal motorcycle a normal MotoGP gp bike which is already pretty stiff and uh, um, you have to throw it into the corners the honda was a top and um, of that and uh, mark marcus was able to do it And now they switched the balance to a more balanced setting where they took a little bit of the front uh, balance and put it towards the rear because no one could no one could ride the old Honda because it had no rear grip at all except Mark Marcus. He somehow made it work. And uh, if I'm Honda, my only hope uh, is Peter Acosta, to be honest, because next year I don't necessarily see how you can develop a bike uh, with what you have and because Mark Marcus won't be able to develop the bike he will miss every test until at least the winter you don't know how he's healing up or whatever and um, yeah with uh, Moto2 uh, unfolding the way it unfolds uh, I still believe that Aaron Canet is a is a motherfucker if he can win he can win multiple times I believe it's just that little barrier that he has to break um but yeah i would sign like a rookie as a replacement for uh, alex marcus and uh, i would sign ayogura simply because takaka nakagami isn't uh isn't good and maybe juan mir but it's it's so tough because those people won't be able to develop the bike you know And uh, the, which brings an argument of keeping pole, but pole is, isn't good at all. So you're in a pretty miserable situation, but um, I still believe that Pedro uh, will go to Repsol Honda because Repsol is a big Spanish company. They have a lot of money. Pedro is from Spain. He's like the best uh, thing you can get after Marc Marquez from a talent perspective. And Marc Marquez is injured. So I would just entertain Marc Marquez as long as he's uh, happy and uh, sign Pedro and win titles and build the bike around him. But uh, yeah, I don't know what to do next year. There's an argument for keeping uh, Paul. There's an argument for keeping uh, Alex Marcus. And there's an argument for uh, keeping uh, Taka Nakagami as a test rider. But there's also an argument to uh, clean the house completely. So I don't know. But yeah, with that and the uh, uh, brief mention of Aaron Kanet, I would like to... Uh, Head down to Moto2. You want to add one more thing? 
No, no, no. I'm just okay, saying okay. we're going to way down the middle too. Let's okay, get to okay. I thought this was like a sign where uh, he said, okay, hey, hold up. Mm. Um, yeah, Model 2 was an absolute banger. Model 2 usually isn't uh, the most exciting class. Remy and Roll made it exciting last year for a couple of races, but uh, usually it isn't, but it was now. And Aaron Canet, he uh, had a great race. I mean, Joe Roberts uh, made it possible because he was... Uh, He was uh, heading the fuck out, but he pulled a Jack Dixon and crashed in the lead. Um, but yeah, Aaron Canet, he was in the position to win, uh, but he blew it because um, turn nine, he stayed on the outside as long as he could. Basically like Pedro did last year in Jerez. And um, he was in the perfect position. He just braked like a couple of meters too late and opened the door for Vietti to slide in. And he had it, everything uh, lined up perfectly, but he blew it. His own fault, he just needed to uh, to break this a little bit earlier because Vietti was, in the, was on the outside. There's no way in this corner, in this turn 10, which is a long left-hand corner, which closes in again, that Vietti will overtake him on the outside. You just have to be there and take uh, the place or take the space where Vietti can cross... Uh, across your line because you're there and then you win the race um but yeah vietti uh took the gap and aaron canet uh, gave him the gap and after that he uh defended perfectly for the last couple of corners i mean vietti is back he had a tough couple of races but he's back so it looks good for him in the championship now yeah um absolutely incredible moto 2 race um as you said a, a true banger of a race um first of all i was gutted for joe roberts um had a brilliant start to the race leading uh, as he did but then as you said he, he did what jake dixon is known for unfortunately and crashed out while he's in the lead by the way the fact that jake dixon has become a verb is <laughs> pretty disappointing but it is what it is um But no, I'm I'm pretty upset for Joe Roberts. He had a good start to the race. He looked composed, and then he just binned it, unfortunately. Um, Aaron Canet was brilliant from beginning to end, even though he left the door open for Celestino Vietti. And when you have a rider who is as mature and as composed as Vietti, he's going to take that opening every single day of the week. And, of course, today he did. Like you said, he held him off perfectly for those final couple of corners. And, yeah. Celestino Vietti is back. Whether he ever went anywhere, I would argue that. But he had that disappointing crash out last time out. I do know that at Mugello. Uh, but Vietti is brilliant. He really, really is. He is arguably the title challenger this year. Um, I just think the maturity and the composure that he shows is perhaps above anybody. It really, really is. He knows when to overtake. He knows when to take those opportunities and he knows how to shut the door behind him. So congrats, so congrats to Celestino Vietti. Brilliant race. Aaron Canna, to me, is a bit like Pekka Banyaya last year in MotoGP. And on BT Sports coverage uh, of MotoGP, Neil Hodgson said of Pekka Banyaya when he wins his first race, you won't be able to stop him because he will get a taste for it. And I believe this is the same philosophy to apply to Aaron Canet. 
once he finally gets that first win, he will explode through the glass ceiling and he'll probably pick up four or five wins this season if he can get the first one. Aaron Cannett is, like you say regularly, he is a beast of a rider. He is brilliant. He's suited to the Premier class, I think, perfectly. And he does a great job in Moto2 as well. Um, and if it weren't for that leaving of the door open, he would have won. He absolutely he had the win in his hands and Celestino just came in and swiped it from him. But all in all, a brilliant, brilliant race. Yeah, I would uh, say Aaron kind of dropped the ball because he, just, would. Uh, would. he got a little bit too, uh, too overexcited or... I don't, I don't necessarily know how to phrase it, but he wanted to break as late as possible, but kind of forgot that he was on the inside and couldn't make the turn. And yeah, it is what it is, but still a great race from him. And also Pedro, he had a solid recovery. He started like in 12th and uh, finished in sixth. So it's okay, but these uh, a weekend like this uh, shows me that he's not ready for the step up into MotoGP because he isn't able to do what Raul Fernandez did, which is consistently be on top in every race and challenge for every victory. And I thought there was a possibility that after uh, Le Mans and Mugello that he finally understood the bike properly. But um, yeah, uh, it seemed like there was some kind of issue uh, which uh, prevented him from qualifying on top. And yeah, but it's still... It's still good, but uh, Pedro, he had um, he has still some issues that he needs to solve because um, I talked with uh, a member of the team and um, I asked him basically because there are so many flames from the, um, from the exhaust of Pedro if he lets the bike roll a little bit uh, more than the other riders in the corners, which tends to uh, be like the Moto3 style, take the corners as fast as you can, carry a lot of speed because you don't have the power uh, to accelerate um, properly. And uh, he said uh, on the outside, it may look like that, but funny enough, it's, it's uh, basically the opposite. And um, Pedro is really, really good at tight corners, like start, uh, stop and start, uh, for example, the more or, um, or like this... Um, turn 10 in um, in Catalonia where you break deep into the corner, flip the bike around and just accelerate out of it. And um, he struggles a little bit on the those long corners where you hardly break. And um, he just uh, sends it in where he needs to go off the gas a little bit earlier and flow a little bit more. Uh, and he tries too hard on the entry there. And um, he should turn the bike more easily and focus on the exit, but he's pushing a little bit too hard there. Those are the uh, the areas where he needs to improve. And for all these reasons, I believe that he isn't ready to step up to MotoGP next year. I thought maybe if he uh, if he finally understood how to uh, ride a Moto2 Moto bike properly and contents for the victory every um, every race maybe it would be possible but uh, the way it is right now um, it's not uh, I believe it's not a smart move to uh, move up to MotoGP he just needs time he's doing very well he's developing um, exceptionally as a rider 
but he still needs a little bit more time. And also he needs to learn all the new tracks where he didn't write uh, last year. Yeah, I agree. And I think on the last episode we did after Magello, I think me and you both agreed that even if Paco, or sorry, not Paco, even if Pedro somehow won the title this year, I'd still keep him in Moto2 for another year to develop, to mature, to get used to those tricks that you mentioned, because the step up from Moto3 to Moto2 is much bigger than a lot of people think it is. A lot of people think it's just moving up to a slightly bigger bike than Moto3 when nothing could be further from the truth. With Moto2, there's a totally different way to ride the bike than in Moto3. Like you said, when it comes to rolling off the throttle, even the way you enter and exit corners, it's a completely different philosophy to a Moto3 bike. You have to be more measured. You have to take speed in different areas and decelerate in different areas as well. And once Pedro has those fine niches down in those areas, he will be as good as he did in Moto3 and he will get those same results. Of that, I've got no doubt whatsoever. But I agree with you. I think he should stay in Moto2 for this year and even for next year also. Grow, mature, develop, get with the bike, get that rhythm going, achieve what Raul Fernandez could and that consistency and consistently being on top. And then you're ready for the premier class and it'll work out better as well because 2023 is going to be a jam for riders trying to move up to the premier class anyway ride it out till 2024 and he, he will get his chance there's no doubt about that yeah and we briefly uh talked about it on the last episode that if you are a good rider on not necessarily a good rider a world class world class rider you don't ride with your brain you don't ride with your eyes you ride with a feeling you know when the bumps are coming when uh, you get some kind of a of a state of mind of a flow state where you just flow around the track you feel uh, the bumps you've you're like one two three now i have to turn in now i have to this have to have this lean angle this slide on the rear now i have to flick the bike something like this um when you're a world cross class rider you don't uh you don't ride with your eyes or ride with your brains and the fact that pedro is still pushing the bike a little bit too hard into those fast uh, sweeping corners where you aren't necessarily long on the brake shows to me that he hasn't developed this feeling to an extent which he needs to to win a world title which isn't a criticism at all because he's uh nine races into his Moto two uh season a lot of people uh would have uh, would have accomplished far less in their rookie season so um, but it's just a sign to me that he just needs more time he's still 18 years old in a couple of days give him one more year in 2024 everything will be easier for him uh, when he moves up to MotoGP because I truly believe that he will uh, win the world title next year I don't see anything stopping him from this because A, the top riders, in my opinion, should all move up. And second of all, there are no riders who are remotely as good as uh, Pedro Acosta. And I basically don't see it. And if Pedro uh, is dominant next year, he can pick and choose wherever he wants to go. And Raul Fernandez this year is a perfect example that maybe it's not the best idea to move up prematurely. And... Um, I believe if Pedro somehow wins the championship this year, he should move up because 
there's nothing to gain from Moto2 anymore. But if he doesn't, he should stay. As simple as that. Yeah, this is very fair. Um, I agree with that estimation pretty much entirely, actually. And even focusing on the race itself, you know, to get sicked from Catalonia, nine races into your Moto2 career, brilliant, brilliant result. Very, very happy with Pedro. And it's actually funny, I'm just looking at the standings now for the race, and I actually think the podium for this weekend could be the podium by the end of the season. Uh, Vietti won Canet 2 and Augusto Fernandez 3. Like, when it comes to the title standings, I think that could be how things fold out at the end of the season. Just a little bit of trivia um, and nothing more than that. But moving on, and one guy who I was very interested with, and I think you've got something to say about this as well, is Marcel Schroeder, uh, kind of pulling out a P5 out of nowhere uh, and under the eyes of many people as well. i got to be honest, I was really impressed with that. But I think um, we both have the same issue here with him. I think the fact that he had the hard rear tire, I think we probably expected a little more from him towards the end of the race. But what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, congratulations to him for being in this uh, place. It's not... Uh not his usual uh, finishing position. So he did very good. I don't want to take anything away. But if you want to criticize something, um, he chose the hard rear tire, which theoretically allowed him to push more towards the end of the race. And he basically was in this fifth uh, position, more or less the entire race. Uh, as soon as he got to this leading group he wasn't able to advance and um augusto fernandez for example did it he advanced he uh, overtook jake dixon and um yeah kenneth and vietti they managed to uh set the set the bar so high that master schrotter even with the maybe tire advantage uh, wasn't able to uh, overtake them so i believe if you um if you want to criticize something, this would be it. And uh, when I watched the race halfway through, I thought, okay, maybe Marcel, he can do something. But uh, it turned out he couldn't, which was rather disappointing uh, for me. But uh, yeah, in the big picture, still a great result for him. And I don't want to take anything away from him. Yeah, same as that. Uh, very impressive to make it up to P5. Could he have pushed a little more? Maybe, yes, if not likely. But I think he'll be more than happy with that in the long run. Yeah. And uh, last category, Moto3, which was uh, another banger. I mean, uh, the two big stories are A, Izan Guevara. He managed to break away. He kind of uh, set the standard in the free practice where he was so unbelievably good there was uh one free practice session uh where izan uh was it was fp2 if i remember correctly where izan was in the 148s and nobody else except dennis foggia was in the 149s and dennis foggia had like a 149.9 so on the high uh, end of the 149s and basically everybody else was uh, 150 and above so Izan in those hotter conditions in FP2 was over a second faster than everybody else and it was uh, yeah it was so dominant he picked the perfect moment to break away because he had David Munoz and um, 
Dennis Enchu behind and both both of them uh, don't have the best straight line speed necessarily because A, they're KTMs and Honda is simply better than the KTMs and B, Dennis Enchu who was in second at this time uh, is a lot bigger than uh, Izan. So it's uh, it's the perfect uh, storm to break away and he did it. He never looked back and it was uh, very, very, very impressive to break away on a track like Catalonia is it's very gangster. Oh, it is, yeah. And especially in Moto3 as well, to break away on any track is impressive. But especially in Catalonia is just a mightily, mightily impressive thing. Very gangster indeed. But then again, that is the style of Isan Guevara. He is just such a good young rider. It's, I mean, the talent in Moto3 is terrifying when you look at it. The levels that we're at are just unlike anything we've probably ever seen. And Isan Guevara is one of those riders. I mean, like you said, to be in FP2 and to be a second ahead of Dennis Foggia is just, I don't even know what to say because that is just incredible. That is just unbelievable to achieve that kind of thing. And to basically be two seconds ahead of every other rider in the field is just fantastic. It really is. But even if we look at the race, Guevara was just brilliant, controlled it really, really well. And yeah, he was a clear winner, a clear deserving winner. Incredibly impressed with David Munoz uh, finishing second. Thought he was just biblically good. And to hold off a, something of a veteran in Tatsuri Suzuki, being that young David Munoz, was just an absolute credit to him to get a podium at his age. And this is only one of his first few races in Grand Prix racing. It's his second race. To be on the podium in your second ever race is just mega. And I cannot be happier for David Munoz because he's he's always been such a good rider. And to prove that now just proves how good he truly is. Tatsuti Suzuki rounded off a brilliant podium, but all around everybody was great today. Thought it was a great race as it always was for the most part. And all around it was pretty epic. Yeah, I mean, uh, David Munoz, he... I wrote down in my notes, David Munoz is a motherfucker and I can't phrase it any better. Because uh, the dude, club. <laughs> dude shows up on a bike. I mean, they all have the same KTM, okay? But on a bike which wasn't necessarily successful uh, with the previous riders... I mean, Ana Carrasco is still there. Where did she finish? Let me check. Let me scroll down to the back. She was last uh, with one minute, 58 uh, seconds to be uh, correct, with one minute behind the leader. And to beat your teammate this dominantly, beat everybody else except uh, Izan Guevara. And... Um, fight your way through the field on, on in your home Grand Prix, on your second ever start. Uh, I'm, I don't know how to phrase it. It's too impressive uh, for me to put it in words. And uh, I'm happy for him, first of all. Second of all, I'm excited for the future. And uh, yeah, he seems to be uh, built from the right material because he, he was on, um, on the back of the grid, on the starting grid. And uh, fought his way through the field along with Jaume Masia. He was matching him toe-to-toe. -to -toe. 
he was uh, overtaking dudes and basically never got uh, overtaken again. And uh, yeah, to fight uh, with uh, Tatsuki Suzuki and with uh, Sergio Garcia in the last uh, lap and keep calm there is too impressive. I don't know what to say. Yeah, it was it was good and I'm excited for the future. Oh, how could you not be? I mean, it's just impressive beyond measure. It really is. I mean, for me, I know it's a little bit premature with David Munoz maybe, but I think him and Diogo Moreira could be the two stars of the future in that class. I think they're both just sensationally gifted riders. And to be able to hold off Tatsuri Suzuki, Sergio Garcia, Dennis Anju, even Carlos Tatai to a degree as well, to hold off that caliber of rider, to get a podium in your second ever race, it's, it, I don't even know what to say, but I am so happy for him. Yeah. And he has now 25 points after two races. He finished uh, 11th in Le Mans. Uh, very very impressive um i feel very sorry for um for dennis foggia because once again he got unlucky uh word on the street is that he uh crashed on a tear off in mugello which wasn't uh, his fault and uh, his engineer basically said that his lean angle in uh, in mugello wasn't as low or as high whatever you want to phrase it uh, as it usually would be. So this speaks to this excuse. But yeah, now his chain came off. What do you want to say? I mean, he's back like 60 points now. He was back over 100 points last year. So if it's possible in Moto3, it is possible. But you got to feel for the guy because uh, through no fault of his own, uh, he had two DNFs and yeah, he sh he deserves better. There's no uh, no karma there. This is just cruel. Man, I really hope Dennis Fodge isn't going to become the new John McPhee because I can't go through that. I like Dennis Fodge too much to see this happen to him, Leo. I swear to God. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about misfortune, you know. Um, starts the race really well. His chain comes off, of all things. And then to crash on a... You know, to crash on Magello last time out the way he did on a visor slip uh, off as well it's just rough it really is and Foggia was many people's pick to win the championship at the beginning of the season I mean he was one of my favorites and look I I, I think he'll be back still Um, I don't think this is a lot of people have been saying oh this is the end for Dennis Foggia it's not the end okay it's just a couple of unfortunate races he'll be back next time out in uh, Germany at the Sachsen ring and he will he will get back in those good results. But unfortunately, I mean, that could have happened to anybody. That's just bad misfortune, as you said. And hopefully he will be back next time. That's all I can really say. Yeah, I uh, I will make a prediction. I believe Dennis Foggia will win the Sachsen Ring in uh, dominant fashion, pretty much like Danny Kent did in 20, what was it, 2015? 15 that's yeah, right yeah yeah 2015 um where he just uh broke away from the field and took the victory by storm i believe uh dennis foggia will do it uh on the same motorcycle on the same track like uh, danny kent did and um there's one little thing i would like to add uh before we wrap this off which is uh 
today is Sunday. Um, on Tuesday, I'll be flying to Palma de Mallorca to record the podcast with uh, Joel Castle. So I'm really Lovely. excited about that. Really excited to uh, talk to him and uh, about his race. He seemed to have no straight line speed at all. I will ask him uh, what was going on because he qualified ninth. He had a very good start, was like in sixth or seventh uh, place when he headed to the main straight and basically wasn't able to uh, close the gap to the rider in front at all. He uh, It looked a little bit like he was dropping off uh, in the slipstream and people were overtaking, overtaking him. And somehow he managed to finish in the points. Let me check. He was in 12th. So he finished in 12th position. Very good. But I believe it would have been uh, much more possible today if he uh, would have been able to uh, get a little bit more straight line speed. But yeah, I will certainly ask him. Uh, he's, he has a great future and uh, it's these little things like a good qualifying, a good first lap. And if he sorts these uh, things out, like we talked previously about rookies, it's all about gaining these experience and also making those mistakes and learning from these mistakes or not necessarily his mistakes, but also the team's mistakes, adapting uh, to him as a rider and working better together that I believe uh, from a talent perspective, Joel Kelso is uh, as good as Daniel Gado. I truly believe that. And uh, I believe he uh, will do some, dan uh, some damage uh, this year and he will be a threat in the upcoming seasons. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think that's the only issue Joel Kelso has, and it's not even an issue to do with him. If he can get some straight line speed behind him, he can definitely be cracking that top 10 regularly. I see no reason why not. Even towards number seven, number six, I think he's more than capable of it. But when you do record that with him, I'm very intrigued to hear what he has to say. I'm sure many people are, because Joel Kels is one of the most likable people in the paddock. I don't think there's any doubt about this. And I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. Lucky you. Yeah, and uh, don't take this personally, but uh, I believe that uh, Joel Kels is the only cool ginger on uh, planet Earth. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he has some kind I'm not ginger. It's all, it's all good. I don't take that personally. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, yeah. It's, it's some kind. It's some kind of a, a weird thing uh, when people declare themselves a, a ginger when not. Uh, I don't necessarily see a straight uh, line there where I say, okay, this is a ginger. This is not. But yeah, um, he has some kind of swagger to him, uh, which is really cool. Maybe he does have a soul. Who knows? We will. Uh, we will find out. So, uh, yeah, hope he's not watching this right now. <laughs> yeah, I hope Joel. See you to, in two days. No, in three days. Uh, in two days, we'll fly to Palma, and then on uh, Wednesday, we'll meet up, record the podcast. And yeah, who knows what's uh, what the day is gonna bring. Last time out with Remy, it was amazing. He he showed me his workshop, his uh, his car. He actually has a um. He has the Instagram page, Amazon Swap. You can uh, check this out. And he proudly presented it uh, at Catalonia. He took us to, um, to training next day at Rocco's Ranch. It was an amazing day. Unfortunately, it was the day where he broke his wrist. So, um, yeah, hopefully Joel won't injure himself uh, when we uh, meet up 
or it's once again uh, bad luck MotoGP memes. But yeah, um, <laughs> thanks everybody for watching. Uh, we will see each other um, next week, I guess, when I will be able to uh, record the podcast, upload it. Uh, usually, it takes a little bit more time than those uh, post uh, post game post post game, yeah, post race shows. Um, to uh, wrap everything up and uh, edit it on uh, iMovie but yeah I will I will try my best to upload it as uh, soon as possible maybe next weekend uh, could be possible I'm not promising anything but uh, Keelan we will see each other in two weeks uh, after the German Grand Prix and I know for a fact that we will see a different MotoGP winner there so uh, I'm I'm very excited for the race and yeah Great to talk to you and see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Great, great to talk to you again, Leo. Thank you very, very much, everybody, for watching episode 10 of the Bad Motor GP show. Uh, and as always, please feel free to drop your comments down below what you thought. What did you think of the races? And yeah, always let us know what you think. We're always looking forward to hearing it. Great to talk to you again, Leo. And I will see you on the other side of Germany. Goodbye.